Hey there, banditos. Welcome to yet another Wednesday episode of the Dollar Bin Bandits on this Wednesday, October 19th. I am Joe Marcello. I'm Warren Phillips. And our buddy Mike cannot be with us today, but you are in for a treat. You have the OG bandits. That's right. Joe and Orrin are here to welcome you to the Wednesday bliss that is comic book day. And uh, we're bringing you a great interview today. This is with a, a, a fantastic artist, one who I was a fan of and not even aware of it because I'm terrible with names. Uh, we're talking about none other than Tom Mandrake. I was a fan of his work, specifically on Martian Manhunter and Spectre. Fantastic artwork. Loved it, loved it, loved it. I think probably one of the best artists for Spectre um, that I've ever seen. The eyes are absolutely haunting. And the interview that you guys did was absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you. So, yeah, when Tom Mandrake emailed me back and said, sure, I'll come on. It was one of those, wait, oh, he really said yes? Uh, I got to really uh, buckle down here. Uh, fascinating guy, a wonderful guy. Like you said, Joe, his art is hauntingly beautiful. Uh, going even back to his early work in DC and Marvel, and you see the evolution of his art to where it is now. Uh, it's again one of those artists where you see his work and you know exactly who did it and i think that's such a rarity in the comic book world so uh, without further ado our interview with the great tom Mandrake. well thanks very much for having me so it's a great pleasure talking to you we're going to start the way we do with um all of our questions and that is how did you discover comics well <laughs> um my dad was a comic book fan. Um, so, I, you know, I was lucky in that respect. The comics were always right there. Um, he, he liked comic books and he liked pulp magazines. You see right over this shoulder, this shoulder over here. There's still some, some of his pulp magazines are right there over my shoulder. And when I was a little kid, my, my dad and I would have arguments over who was better, Captain America or Captain Marvel. So I was lucky that he would we'd go to the uh, newsstand and he would buy me comic books. So it was just part of a natural process for me to be involved in the, in the whole thing. Horror movies, old radio shows, comic books, it was part of our life. We usually ask as a follow-up, you know, whether you have any of your original purchases, but you, you will have what your dad showed you, the pulp magazines, which is yeah. it's pretty amazing. You hang, hung on to them. Almost afraid sometimes to pick them up because especially the pulp magazines. Now, these that I have right here in the studio with me are in pretty good shape, but I have other ones, uh, some beautiful old issues with the Virgil Finley illustrations in them that are powdery. You know, pulp magazines don't uh, wear well. And those 1940 editions are getting so brittle. I like to show them to my kids, too. But every time you turn the page, you know, they deteriorate even more. Well, one of your stops in your comic journey uh, was with First Comics. And how did you uh, get in there? And how did that experience help you as an artist? So uh, first comics, yeah. So I was working on uh, Grimjack with uh, John Ostrander at first, um, and that was that was after I was working on Batman. I finished up a run on Batman. I think I did twelve issues there, and I was friends with John and uh, and Kim Yale, 
And as I was coming off Batman, uh, John was like, hey, why don't you do some uh, Grimjack? That would be fun. And I was like, yeah, that, that would be fun. And I ended up staying on the book for a long time. I think I, I had the longest run in that book of anybody, including Tim uh, Truman, who was the uh, one of the creators, along with John. Um, and we were, you know, left to our own devices. First was the kind of company that was like, you guys do what you want to do and and have a great time. And we did. Uh, John is a great creator. And if, as you know, John and I did a ton of work together. We did Grimjack and then we did Firestorm and we did uh, the Spectre and um, uh, Martian Manhunter. And uh, and just a couple of years ago, we did a creator own book called uh, Cross Hallowed Ground. So years and years of working together. Um, but I think that uh, the freedom that we had to work on uh, uh, Grimjack gave me the opportunity to really explore my style. As let's say when you mentioned freedom, as an artist, how important was it for you to take that sort of detour into the independent scene where you can explore your own creative, you know, uh, ideas and stuff like that? It, for for me, it, it's very important. Um, you know, early early on when I was going to the Kubert School, one of the things that Joe Kubert always said to me was you have to pencil and ink your own stuff you know joe always penciled it inked his own things very rarely did he ever work on anybody else's stuff after a certain point in his career um, at the same time when i first started out i also had a very good relationship with uh, dick giordano who at that time in the early 80s was i think publisher or editor-in-chief i can't remember what his title was at dc and um and he was pushing me, not heavily, but he wanted me to ink. Um, now, there, there was a lot of inking work available to me, um, both at Marvel and DC at the time. And so, you know, I was, I think it was 81 or 82, I was inking the New Mutants, or actually finishing the New Mutants over layouts over Salvi Summer. And that avenue was definitely open to me. But Joe's voice, actually Joe's voice still rings in my head. He's always right behind me, telling me what to do, uh, even now. But... But penciling and inking has always been the thing that I wanted to do. And uh, and I always pushed for that. Um, it was a bit of a struggle early on because, uh, you know, companies are always looking to, maybe not so much now, but especially in the 80s, 90s, they're always looking to plug you in places where they need you. We need an inker here. We need a penciler there. Um, uh, there's more freedom now, but at that time, it would have been really easy for me to just go down that path, be a penciler or be an inker. But I was determined. I, I, was, I worked hard, at, you know, and I, was, I think I was lucky um, that Len uh, Ween, who was my editor on Batman, and, and uh, Dick Giordano gave me that shot on, on Batman at that time. I got the pencil and ink the book for a year. That was awesome. And after that, I jumped over to working for First with John. Uh, those are both great opportunities. Um, uh, some people question that idea of leaving, you know, uh, a book like Batman and, and going to first. I think it was the right thing to do. Well, there's no doubt about it at this point. You know, it worked out fine for me. <laughs> so far, so good. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. So I wanted to back up to um, a little point you mentioned around you're doing the inks or the finishing inks over um, Salvi Sema on New Mutants. 
it, it seems to me that that's kind of this um, great transitionary process between inking and penciling, because uh, from what I can understand, you you know have more loose layouts when you're doing the finishing ink, and you have a little bit more control. Did you did you see it that way when you were in the midst of it that you were sort of on your way to moving from an inker to a penciler? That was one of those rare jobs for me where, uh, and, and this is really early in my career. Again, it was a great opportunity. Um, uh, when I got the job, I was asked to try and imitate another inker style. In that case, it was Bob Layton. He was the guy that was doing the job before I was. And they asked me if, if I could work like that early in my career. I'm like, yes. I want the work. I'll do it. So it was a very loose pencils by Sal. So I had to go in and, you know, finish off the buildings and things in pencil and, and then go in and, and, and do uh, as much as possible ink like Bob. Um, and it was, and it worked out uh, well enough. It was a very different look for me. If you, if you, if you look at that job and anything else I was doing at the time, it's definitely a stylistic departure for me. But that's good, you know, trying something different like that. Uh, that was a, a real opening for me at Marvel. Uh, it was a great um, opportunity for me, and I'm glad that I took it. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was a really interesting job. And, boy, I remember uh, sales in that, if you think about this now, uh, we were way up in the 200s, um, 250, 225, 225,000 copies. And, uh, and yeah, they got fired because the sales weren't good enough. <laughs> but that was, that was the period of time. A different world. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, and you moved on to, you also worked on uh, Sergeant Rock for a while. And doing uh, sort of war books that are a little bit based on, you know, reality of uh, soldiers' experiences. Was it sort of limiting artistically to branch out to something more that you maybe wanted to do or had to stay focused on more realistic-based images? Um, so the, uh, the short war stories that I was doing for the backups in Sergeant Rock um, so l let me back up a little bit there. Um, so the Kubert School, when I went there, was a two-year school. Uh, I was in the second graduating class. And um, we were pretty raw when we got out of there. We were the last of the second year of the two-year classes. After that, it became a three-year school. Um, and that was good because coming out of there after two years, we needed a third year. And um, while we were working me and several of the other graduates were working on those backups. We were under a very heavy thumb of Joe. He would give us those um, scripts and really, really heavy editorial work. And if you look at them, I have some of the originals here. I've never given these away because I'd go in and, okay, here's the pencils. And he'd be like, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Take it back. Fix it. Bring it back. Okay. That's a little bit better, but fix this, fix this, fix this. Then when I would finally get it up to his standards, he'd go back in and re-ink about like every face on it, which at the time I was like, oh, I must be terrible at this. But it was a wonderful learning experience. So I consider 
uh, the year or two that I spent working on those backups to be my third year of the Cuber School. And now I've got these great pages of, of my very raw stuff with these wonderful Joe Kubert faces that are all inked right over top of it. So that's how I see that work. Were war books anything that you were interested in doing or that you like more the, the superhero fantasy sort of aspects? I've, I've always been interested in all genres of comics. To me, uh, it's it's always about the storytelling. You, you can you can dress comic book characters up in any kind of clothes that you want. It's still the storytelling. I, you know, I like war stories and cowboys and uh, horror and superheroes. And and you you become known for certain things um, without a doubt in my career. I, uh, I, I sort of landed on the uh, supernatural superhero thing that's what people know me for that's awesome i love that that i'm known for anything that's great but um i didn't choose that necessarily it's what people like the best you know i that the specter series that i did is the thing that i became the most known for i love that but i'm perfectly happy to do a western or a, the only thing i don't think that i've ever done let me think about this for a minute I don't think I've ever done a romance comic, but I'd be perfectly happy to do that if the opportunity arose, just to see what it would feel like. I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how does uh, backup stories work? How does how are the artists chosen, and who assigns you what for that? Um, back. So I'm going to speak to this. Let's say back when uh, back in the '80s. So. At that time, uh, there was a group of editors at DC that were interested in helping out some of the um, students who were coming out of the Cuber School. Um, so yeah, Joe, uh, who was working on the, um, so there was the horror comics, I think it was Jack Harris. Um, Len Wein was there. And so they, they were feeding us work and, and helping us learn. I want to say Marv Wolfman, but I'm not sure that he was an editor at that time. Maybe there were a few other guys. So there was an interest on their part. Uh, they could see how bad we wanted the work. And we used to go up, talk about a different time. You could go up to DC or Marvel and sit in the lobby. And as people went by, I'd say, you know, have you got any work? Is there anything I can do for you? You know, some of the earliest work I had at the time was uh, doing um, backgrounds on uh, a, a Supergirl strip that I believe Carmine Infantino, yeah, it was Carmine, uh, he was penciling a Supergirl strip. So just by hanging around the lobby and constantly like, hey, I, I'm, I'm looking for something. You got anything, got anything? And I, and I finally uh, nailed down a, a, a fairly regular gig doing uh, the backgrounds on the Supergirl strip. Actually, I still have the... Uh, the pay stub for that up on my wall here to remind myself of what it was eight dollars a page to do those back the backgrounds on those supergirls. Um, but it's always good to remember, you know, when you want work, you'll you'll do anything that you have to. Um, yeah. I feel like I just drifted away from what you were asking me. <laughs> um, but at any rate, so first I think you have to have editors who are interested in helping young talent. Um, and I see that happening now at um, at Dynamite. So now I see a very similar process happening. Um, a lot of, uh, well, I won't say a lot, several students as they're coming out of the Cuber School are, 
are getting work from Dynamite backups and things because Dynamite seems to want to help new students. So you need that enthusiasm from people in editorial to say, we have to help new people. But the same thing is really happening with um, with DC. You know, at the, at the beginning of this summer, um, the Kubert School and DC joined together to do this milestone initiative thing. I don't know if you heard about that or not, um, but I was uh, involved in that as the instructor for the uh, arts artists on the milestone initiative. So that was a great thing too, because they, they went through this huge process of looking at all these artists and writers from all over the United States. And they picked out 12 artists and 12 writers and boy, these, these artists and writers, they really wanted it. And it was just a, a wonderful process. And, and we, I think we had 12 weeks to, to go through a, a process of teaching them and then, they got scripts and we all came to California and got together. It's tremendous. So DC still has, I think, that fire. But there were some young editors there who were really involved in making this work. Excellent. So skipping around a little bit, um, although you just mentioned DC, and I wanted to go back to you know some of the work you did with Bat on Batman, um, particularly with uh, Doug Mensch and introducing a couple villains. Um, how difficult is it with a such an established rogues gallery uh, such as Batman's to, you know, introduce a new villain that would stick? Of course, you didn't know it would stick, but I'm, I'm specifically talking about Black Mask. Um, you know, what was that experience like? And is it is it sort of a daunting task to try to <laughs> introduce a new Batman villain? It was it was such a shot out of the dark. You know, the first issue that I did on Batman. And I was, I was on top of the world, you know, that was, I think, 1985. And I found out, I, I guess it was Dick Giordano who told me, I can't remember if I first talked to Dick or Len, who was the editor, that they were going to let me uh, try out for Batman. And then I got the book and signed a contract for a year. It was like, oh, this is awesome. And then we're going to create a new villain. And my first reaction, I'll never forget this, was I, I, I think I mentioned this to Jan and one of my best friends at the time. I was like, oh, I really want to do the Joker. <laughs> and and uh, and Doug said, no, no, this is good. We're going to create a new villain. And so, all right, we'll do that. That sounds good. I had no idea that of all characters that the Black Mask, my first Batman story, my first Batman villain would take off and become one of the uh, great Batman villains. I had no idea, uh, but it's awesome that it happened. But you have no idea. You know, I've, I've created other Batman villains and some of them, well, none of the other ones ever stuck, you know, it's fine. Uh, but yeah, it, you just, you go for it. And uh, over the course of your career, you throw a lot of stuff at the wall and hope something sticks. And when it does, you're like, why was, why that one and not this one? Who knows? Uh, you're such a, for Mike and I, such a dynamic artist and, and one of our favorites as well. And I'm wondering, when did you find the confidence in your artistic style? Was there a point that you felt you belonged in the industry and that your vision for uh, how things should look, you know, is syncing well with, with fans and the company as well? <clears throat> That's that's always been an interesting question for me, and I, I remember talking to uh, uh, Andy Kubert about this, and 
we, we were co-teaching uh, a narrative art class. Um, this must have been, I don't know, 10 years ago. Um, and just trying to figure that same thing out. When do you become comfortable with yourself? Early on, you have a sort of sort of the bluster of youth. You know, it's like, oh, I can do this. I'm good at this. But the reality is somewhere deep inside, you're like, uh, there, there's somebody in the back of your head going, ah, oh, you're terrible. You don't know what you're doing, you know? And, and that that is to some extent true. You really, you really haven't really got it figured out. And somewhere five, 10 years into my career, I sort of settled into what I was doing and said, I think I know what I'm doing now. Um, it was somewhere, somewhere during Firestorm, which I there there are fans who really like what I was doing Firestorm. But in retrospect, when I look at that artwork, I'm like, this is where I suddenly figured out what it was I wanted to accomplish. I'm not saying that work I did before that wasn't good, because there are high points and low points and experimental points before that, and stuff that I look at and go, wow, I really. I really hit the nail on the head that time or, well, that was, you know, a near miss there. But um, by the time that I got through Firestorm and we started on Spectre, that's when I sort of, I feel I sort of blossomed as an artist and felt the confidence that I was really looking for. So that would be about 10 years into my career. And when I talked to Andy about that, he was like, yeah, I feel it was about 10 years for me too. So some people never feel comfortable in their own skin in that regard. But, um, and now I'm 40 plus years into it. I'm pretty comfortable now. <laughs> I should think so. Once in a while you have a bad day, but you know, that's, that's artwork because you're always trying to get better. Um, and, and you can have, you can have whole issues or whole series where you, you put everything you got into it. And afterwards you go, all right, I didn't quite get where I wanted to on this but that's okay. And other ones where you feel like you just nailed it all the way through, whether or not the audience picks up on that, there's nothing you can do about that. Again, you, you produce work and sometimes it hits and sometimes it doesn't. Does that mean it's good or bad work? I don't think it does. I think uh, the flow of uh, the reaction of the audience has a lot to do with just the period of time that you're in and you have no control over that. You mentioned uh, the Spectre, of course, and such a dynamic series, and it, it, it hooked me in immediately. Um, at what point, uh, visually and mentally, did you come up with what you wanted the Spectre to look like, how you wanted the feel of the book visually to be, um, to connect with uh, John's words? The, the fact that John and I had spent, what was it, 30-plus, if not more, issues on Grimjack, and uh, was it 12 issues on Firestorm? I forget. I think it was. So all that time that we put into that um, meant that I felt like we hit the ground running on the Spectre. So there's, there's a big difference. Um, on Firestorm, they, DC asked me if I wanted to do that. So that wasn't like I said, hey, let's do Firestorm. I was like, uh, Dan Rasford asked me if I wanted to. It was like, yeah, let's do that. That sounds like fun. But John and I were sitting around saying, hey, what do you want to do next? Nobody want, Nobody's interested in the Spectre. Let's take that because nobody cares about that character. And, and 
we were lucky um, that Rashford was in our corner because he fought for that for us. Because DC was like, nah, nobody cares about Spectre. We're not, we don't want to do that. And we're like, we really want to do it. Let us do it. And they're like, yeah, fine, go ahead. And it turned out to be the right thing. Actually, it was the same thing we did with the Martian Manhunter. When we were, we had, we had a planned ending for the Spectre, which I think is clear if you read through that whole thing. It, we knew where we were going with that. We had a planned ending. Um, and we, when we were wrapping it up, it was like, what do you want to do? Well, and we were like, well, nobody is interested in the Martian Manhunter. Let's take that because we can do what we want with that too. Weird, right? These two are great characters, but when we pick them out, nobody was interested in them. So we got to do exactly what we wanted with them. Do you think, because I thought your drawings captured the, the sort of the horror aspects but also sort of this feeling of madness going on in the specter with what was going on with him, with the other characters. Um, did you feel like that was, you had hit all the points that you wanted to uh, artistically with that book, that this was sort of not a coming out party, but this was you showing, you know, what you wanted to do. Yeah, absolutely. That was, um, it was a wonderful opportunity to um, play this game, and and we really enjoyed. How what can we do? Because it was straight DC comics. It wasn't. Um, it was comics code comics. You know, uh, we weren't playing in the what was it at the time, where you you had DC comics and you had the Karen uh, Karen Berger's line of comics. Um, Impact Vertigo. 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 Right. Right. So we had to deal with um, uh, comics code, and we were always curious to see what can we do in the Spectre to make it as much horror as possible and still get away with it. So that was, you know, when you have parameters, it always makes it more interesting. I think um, parameters make artwork more interesting. I say artwork in a general sense, writing and drawing, whatever field you happen to be in. It's the... uh, it's the parameters that you work in that make you more creative. And that's, um, I think, what one of the things that, that made the Spectre really work. I mean, right there, issue number one, it's a, a skull made out of skeletons with him in the front. I mean, that's right there. That doesn't draw you in or that doesn't sort of set a statement right there of how this is going to go. This is not the Spectre from the 70s and 80s, you know, popping into the JLA sometimes. This is going to be a much darker and deeper look at the, the character. And I think we might have even been a little bit lost if we'd made it a Vertigo book, too, because there were uh, old comic fans, um, you know, j- just straight DC fans who were really into that. I-, I think they were just dying to see that character, you know, blossom as much as he could. And certainly, um, uh, the Fleischer issues, there were only six, I think there were six of them, maybe there were more that Jim Apero did. I'm a big Jim Apero fan. And that was something that when I saw those, they're like, oh, this is something that needs to be explored, but even more. So I feel that we were, to some extent, bouncing off that a little bit, but still doing our own thing. So I think that the fans who love the Spectre really were just waiting for that to happen. In your opinion or in your mind, could you describe the Spectre to us of who he is and what he represents for you personally? Uh, Well, I I think going back to that idea of working within parameters, the interesting thing about the character is that he is a character of unlimited power, only limited by 
his ability to perceive what he has. So the, what's interesting about Jim Corrigan and, and what we played with the whole time was he could have used that power any way he wanted, but he's always stuck in his upbringing, in his ability to perceive what he had. And, and we saw that, uh, we explored that several times when the Spectre Force got away from him or when the Joker took the Spectre Force away from him. And anytime that kind of thing would happen, you could see what could happen with that power and why it was smart of whatever power gave that to him. It recognized that he's the right kind of vessel to have that power because he limits it because he's such a moral person. I wanted to tease out a couple of points that I found interesting in, in the last few questions. One was this idea of parameters um, and constraints, which I think I hear a lot in uh, filmmaking. You know, when you talk about directors that are constrained early in their career by budget, uh, mostly, uh, and they get creative. I, I'm thinking right now because I just heard a little bit of a career retrospective on Sam Raimi. And, you know, making those Evil Dead movies, I mean, the, the, the lengths he had to go to to problem solve on the fly with the amount of money he had and, you know, the resources he had is just, is just amazing. And, and, and sometimes I think when you have everything you could possibly have, that becomes a problem because you're no longer doing that kind of on the fly creative problem solving. I so that must have been, you know, fulfilling, probably in retrospect, you know, at, at the time you may have wanted to say, I, I'd like the open sky, but. <laughs> uh, well, as I say, I think, I think we were having more fun. This is just, I think the way John and I work, we were having as much fun bouncing off of those walls and seeing what we could get away with. Cause we, we'd come up with ideas and then say, well, first to Dan and then, uh, Pete Tomasi took over as editor at some point in the series. I forget which issue he became um, the editor on. And then it was like, well, we want to do this. Can we get away with this? And of course, he'd be the one that'd have to go in and and, and deal with the uh, uh, whoever was over over him or the comics code itself. And I think we kind of enjoyed playing everybody against each other that way. Not that there was ever any real um, battle you know you kind of know where the limits are and you push a little bit to get there and when you look at that series i'm amazed at what they let us do considering there was a comics code at the time although realistically i think we knocked down some walls in terms of blood gore violence uh, implied sexual innuendo there uh, that they they were doing in uh, vertigo you look at the uh, the stuff we did in the specter after that, it seems like it, we just took care of that. We knocked that down, and then anybody could do anything after that. Yeah, you established a precedent uh, that anyone could look at and say, well, Spectre did it. Uh, yeah. can, <laughs> we, might, we might as well have the opportunity. Um, that plays into the other point that I picked up along the way, which is something we've heard again and again, which is pick a character, or if you have the opportunity, pick a character or team that is underappreciated where then you have the opportunity to use your, all of your creative powers to redefine them. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's very interesting that, you know, you and John picked the specter and then picked Martian Manhunter. I mean, great characters 
to redefine or define really in some cases. It's the same reason that we, when we were looking for a golden age character to kill off, uh, we picked Mr. Terrific because at that time, nobody cared about Mr. Terrific and his extremely weird costume, you know, that, that strange um, fair play costume. So we killed him off. This is long before people were turning characters into zombies. So we killed him off, turned him into a zombie for an issue and brought back the, uh, uh, the new Mr. Terrific. And he, he launched very successfully into the new uh, DCU. That was actually my next question uh, about that character. I, I thought it was a extremely successful launch and part of, well, like any character, it's, it's partially, um, you know, the character, the backstory, but also, you know, the design, um, how, you know, how much time did you take to get that design? Cause I think it's really striking. And it's part of what made the character successful was, you know, that big black tea. And you we know, thought a lot about that, you know, um, first the whole idea of bringing back um I, I don't know quite how to describe mr terrific the blandest whitest white guy in the world you know the the original mr terrific was just uh, sort of devoid of ideas there, there were so many millionaire white playboy characters and we thought well what if we we just pulled the rug out of that idea and and, re, and brought it back as as different as we possibly could and that meant that uh the uniform had to be as strikingly different as possible so yeah i went through a lot of sketches on that one come up with that idea um maybe less than than i could have because john and i talked it out it's like you know he just can't initially he can't have too much of a costume he's got to be pretty simple he's got to be straightforward he's got to be just let's say a regular guy but a very straightforward person we, we wanted to create an african-american character out of him so yeah that worked out um but i'm, I'm glad we we made that choice i'm glad we made all those choices yeah i i really think it's one of the better designs of you know the past couple uh decades in terms of rejuvenating a character so you know kudos 20, um, 20 years later, you can say, yeah, that was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure in the moment you're like, is this going to work? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's for sure. Um, I wanted to also um, move on to Martian Manhunter, which was one of my favorite runs. Um, I actually was introduced to Martian Manhunter before I had to go back and realize that you had done the Spectre, which I guess you're definitely more known for. Um, but I just really liked uh, what you were doing in that book. And again, sort of below the radar character. I mean, certainly, you know, part of the Justice League, very powerful, but not really hadn't been delved into, hadn't been like plumbed the depths of what that character could be. Um, how how quickly did you and John sort of land on the tone of that book? Because it's a different book than Spectre, cert, uh, very much. You know, it's not a horror, and and in fact, there's there are a lot of moments of levity. Um, one of my you know most favorite covers and and just ideas was the sort of Oreo fetish uh, <laughs> that he had. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how how that all came about. Um, 
Well, yeah. So as I said before, the first thing was let's find another interesting character that is not popular in the DCU. And, and we started thinking about it. And the idea that the, the Martian Manhunter at first, he never had his own book, right? He, he never had his own series. I can't speak to the Golden Age. I'm not sure if he ever had his own series back then, but I don't think he did. I, th I think he was always a backup. Um, so same same deal. Pete Tomasi was going to be our editor on that. And he went to bat for us on it. Um, and then, of course, we started talking about the tone that we wanted. Um, and this was going to be our opportunity to do something. Uh, for me, it was going to be an opportunity to do something big and, and, and visual and really open up with that kind of uh, sci-fi kind of thing. And, and John John Johns could morph and turn into all these different kinds of things. And, 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 and John, as a writer, has, this, I think, a tremendous ability to write uh, humor as, as well as pathos. And, you know, he's, John can write anything, really, um, which I think he proved way back in Grimjack as well, because to me, there's a lot of really interesting, fun moments of humor in Grimjack as well. So we wanted to explore a very different kind of character, but also have this opportunity because you know, the Martian Manhunter has tremendous power as well. He's a tremendously powerful character. But the thing that we, right away, we thought, what is this thing with fire? This is stupid. This doesn't make any sense. Why is he, why is he allergic to fire? So that, that was the thing that John, I think, was really interested in. How can he make that um, something that sounds real? And so he, it became a psychological element, you know, that, that he explored that idea of, the reason that John Johns has an issue with fire is it's a psychological thing. Um, so, yeah, and there's, yeah, there's a lot of fun um, elements in it. And one of my favorite covers was the one with the pla with plastic man coming, wrapping around it. Um, but I do love that, that Oreo one too. I've still got that one. I don't know that I'll ever get rid of that. <laughs> that one took forever drawing all those Oreos. on it. <laughs> Did you stop eating Oreos for a time after that? I, I, I don't eat Oreos, but it's not because of that. It's, <laughs> I like them too much. Uh, start eating Oreos and you can't finish. You can't stop. Yeah. They're like uh, Pringles. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, actually, and, and I wrote one of those issues, too, which is, you know, I've, I've always wanted to do more writing. I'm always busy drawing, um, but I, I did get to write one of those issues as well, which was fun. I'm wondering things you've had some really nice long runs on a variety of different books. And it seems like in today's industry, long runs on books are not something that is very either chic or people just don't want to do. Uh, if you had your choice, would you rather jump to a whole bunch of different books and try different things or like you did have a nice long run on a book so you could sort of establish the character and really put your mark on it? Well, I've certainly done, I've certainly proven my ability to do long runs and things. Um, and, and I've done recently, I've done a bunch of short series. So uh, I did uh, a short series of Swamp Thing eight pages with Phil Hester. That was really fun. And there's a real challenge to doing short stories. Um, to me, it's, it's like, um, a great writer who can write a really great short story. That's a talent in and of itself. Um, 
and and I did a a little uh, short story um, with uh, Len. It was and one with Marv. These little little eight pagers, ten pagers, twelve pages. I, I find that to be an interesting challenge. I think I think I'm more interested in those because I've done so many long runs on things. Um, uh, the format that I'm finding interesting right now is just going right to graphic novels, you know, rather than um, doing things in, in issues. Uh, uh, I, I just finished a graphic novel. I can't tell you what it is because they haven't announced it yet, but it was with Steve Niles. I'll say that much about it. Um, and I'm writing, writing and drawing one of my own. It's, and it's just, you know, straight to graphic novel format. So that's kind of, the, the one thing that I haven't done a ton of, um, where you just dive right into the graphic novel format. Uh, and I think that's the thing that interests me most right now. So uh, in terms of, of storytelling, each format has its own peculiarities. Um, I've certainly done enough 20 to 24 page stories and, and long runs on series. Um, short, short stories, I love short stories, um, but this, but this business of diving into it, like here's 80 pages or 120 pages, go do it. That's kind of got my interest right now. I, I just did one and now I'm in the middle of another one and I've got a third one lined up and I, that's been my whole summer right now. Well, aside from a couple of short stories that are gonna come out, I did a, a JSA short story. It's gonna be a Halloween publication. And, um, and I did one for Storm King. You guys know Storm King? Sandy, uh, John Carpenter stuff. Uh, they're they're yeah. pretty yeah. comics. So I did another Halloween story for them. So I, I seem to be bouncing back and forth between like 15 pages and 120 pages. It's like uh, that's kind of where I am right now. You did a um, great uh, limited series, and maybe this sort of turned you on to the format, even though it was, I think, separate issues and then combined uh, with J. Michael Straczynski called Sidekick. Yes. Yeah, um, I, I'm curious because he seem he's as in J. Michael seems to be a very specific writer. What you know, what that experience was uh, like for you, uh, as compared to maybe other writers, maybe John. Um, did he have very full scripts, and and you know, how did the project even come about? So with John and I um, always work plot style. Um, so when I'm working with John, it's like, we would get together. Hey, let's do this. That sounds like fun. Here's a plot. I'll do the pencils. John will do the dialogue. Um, so, uh, with Straczynski, it was, he got in touch with me and said, I've got this series. You want to do it? He just come out. It was out of the blue. It's like, and I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds like fun. And, uh, uh, and then the scripts started coming in, and uh, and they were really good, but they were finished scripts. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, he's always got like a million things going on. So um, so I finished the pencils in the first one, and I and I turned him in, and he's like, "Yeah, that's great. Go ahead, ink it." Okay. And um, there was never a lot of not a lot of interaction, um, but he he was he was digging it the whole time we got together at a convention after uh, three or four of them were done and he was very effusive about the work and i was i was having a great time i thought it was a great story 
Um, so I was having fun. He was liking it. We were going to do a second 12-issue uh, run. And then um, on his end, he got too busy. Again, he's got like a billion things he's always doing. So we ended up not doing the next 12 issues. So I was a little disappointed about that, but there were other things to do. So there you go. So it was a very different uh, process than working with John because, um, like I say, Jan's always doing a thousand things. But good, it was good, good thing. It was good work. Good work while it lasted. Yeah. I mean, do, did you do enough of it to say whether you prefer one or the other, or is it just depends on the story? If it's a good story, it sort of doesn't matter. Or maybe it's format, you know, driven. Um, I'm comfortable doing it either way with this caveat. If it's a badly written script, it drives me out of my mind. But he writes a great script. So there are very few times where I was like, all right, the storytelling is not working here. But when I changed it, he was like, yeah, that's great. That's even better. So it was fine. And I've rarely run into a writer where if I make a change in a, in a, a, a script, where they won't appreciate the fact that I made the change. So I feel like that's part of my job. If I'm working on a full script and I see a better way to do it, I'm going to make the change. And with rare exception, um, in fact, I can't even think of any examples off the top of my head. I, I, I haven't had anybody come back and say, well, you ruined it. So <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm a good enough storyteller that I know where the beats are off, you know? You just do it and ask for forgiveness later. Yeah. If you even get to that point, <laughs> you have to ask for forgiveness. It's going to be that big of a problem. They'll let me know. <laughs> exactly. Is there a character or a book that you wish you had uh, an opportunity to, to take a crack at that you haven't gotten to yet? Um, I, I, at one time I would have said Dr. Strange, but he's so high profile now that I kind of don't want to do it anymore. But there was a time when I would have, that I was dying to do Dr. Strange. And now, um, now that he's been in the movies so much, it's kind of like you, you, you would have to sort of, sort of tell a certain line and I'd rather do my own thing with it. So rather than do Dr. Strange, I would rather just do my own thing, my own magic users. Makes sense. So other than that, um, it, it's always fun to dive into, you know, I was always a big Marvel fan, always a big DC fan. They've got great characters. Dr. Fate's a great character. Um, I've, I've done Dr. Fate as a side character in several series. So he'd be fun to do as a main character. There's something about capes. So I love capes. <laughs> <laughs> Spectre, Martian Manhunter. The two you just mentioned, Dr. Strange. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Fate. A good cape is a is a great thing. <laughs> cool, it's a great graphic tool to use. Yeah, uh, you mentioned some projects you have coming up. Some you can't talk about. Some that are in the process of being worked on now. Um, any other things that fans can be looking forward to in the uh, upcoming uh, future? Well, if there was in about uh, let's see, two months. There's going to be let's see, one, two, three, I think about three projects that are going to be announced around me. And um, yeah, we've got three different creator-owned projects going to be coming up. But 
I, I have to I have to stay true to the publisher, which I always do. You know, I never want to jump out in front of anybody. So there's going to be one one series and two graphic novels that are coming up. So I can't say much more than that right now. Perfect. But that's what I've, what I've been spending my summer doing is the uh, two graphic novels in this series that I'm working on. All different. All I'll, I'll say that they're all horror related in in one genre or another. And we're back. Um, I love this interview, guys. You did a great job. Um, you know, there's something I, I really enjoyed about his career, and it's just he has, you know, he's he's one of these artists or comic book creators that really has some long runs on titles. And again, by today's standards, you don't see that too frequently, but he had extensive runs on, as we said, Spectre, um, Batman, Detective Comics, um, Firestorm, I believe he did some work on as well. Um, but great work and really interesting career. And that career keeps going, folks. Uh, the project he's doing with J.M. DeMatteis, he's the artist on these new books coming out. Uh, information about it's trickling out. So please check social media, check websites for this uh, new project he's doing. I'm sure it's going to be absolutely wonderful. And uh, Tom's an absolutely wonderful guy too. So a uh, great time all around. And thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for checking us out again. Please, as Mike always says, like, rate, subscribe, tell your friends. Let's get the word out there about the Dog and Bandits. Have a wonderful day, everyone. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Oren Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all the socials at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram, at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website, dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.